0: Hello and welcome to the OT Schoolhouse Podcast, your source for school-based occupational therapy tips, interviews, and professional development. Now, to get the conversation started, here is your host, Jason Davies. Class is officially in session.
1: What is happening, school-based occupational therapy practitioners? That is a mouthful. Uh, SBOTs, what's happening? Thank you so much for being here for another episode of the OT Schoolhouse Podcast. We got a lot of great things going on at the OT Schoolhouse right now. Some I can talk about, some I just can't let out of the box yet. But we had a great, a wonderful, fantastic OT Schoolhouse back to school conference at the end of August. And we are just building off of that momentum right now to bring more content, more opportunities for you all to interact. That may be a little hint, but I'm just excited for you all for the OT Schoolhouse for all the students and the teachers that we support as school-based occupational therapists. And I know that you, just like myself, we are making a difference in the lives of students um, and also the teachers that help us to support the students or we help the teachers support the students. So I'm excited for everything going on. And I'm also excited for today's chat with Deborah Collette. Today, we are talking about a hot topic. We're talking about handwriting. More specifically, handwriting within Common Core. It's like a hot topic within a hot topic. You know, people either love it or they hate it, Common Core. And likewise, people love that OT is within handwriting and also hate that OT is within the field of handwriting, or maybe it's reversed that handwriting is within OT. But, uh, you know, whether you love it or hate it, it is not untrue that the most common reason for referrals for us as school-based OTs is handwriting. Now, there are a multitude of reasons for that. We're going to dive into that today with Dr. Deborah Collette. And, you know, it's going to be a good chat. You know, there's going to be some things that you full-heartedly agree with. There's going to be other things that make you wonder what the heck is going on with education these days. But this is going to be an episode that is going to help you. You're going to get a lot of language that you can take back to your staff, to your administrators and say, hey, why isn't handwriting in Common Core and what can we do about it? So that's what we're here to talk about common core handwriting, where they mesh, where they don't mesh, and uh, yeah, so we're going to dive into it. Before we do, here are the objectives for today's episode. This is a professional development episode, so you can learn how to earn a certificate of completion for listening over at otschoolhouse.com slash episode 110. And so let's go over our objectives real quick, and then we will dive into it. We have four objectives today, and those are that you will be able to identify the connects and disconnects between the Common Core curriculum and handwriting. You'll also identify the impact Common Core has made on children's written expression. You'll identify how Common Core and handwriting can impact occupational therapists, and you'll learn learn how to identify what occupational therapists can do to support curriculum and handwriting on a systems level. So it's going to be a good one. We're going to address handwriting and common core and occupational therapy. Now, I would love nothing more to introduce you to Dr. Deborah Collette. Deborah Collette is an associate professor and program director at Russell Sage College in Troy, New York. She has actually been a school-based occupational therapist for 18 years before moving into the academic role that she holds now. She has presented findings through AOTA as well as the New York State OT Association and has published them in the AJOT as well as the OTJR. In addition, she's also an educator for the AOTA Fieldwork Educator Certification Program, also known as the FWECP. I haven't yet taken that one, but from what I understand, it is definitely something to consider if you are taking on fieldwork students. With all of that said, please help me to welcome to the OT Schoolhouse Podcast, Dr. Deborah Colette. Deborah, good morning. Welcome to the OT Schoolhouse Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm
0: good, thanks. How are you?
1: I'm doing fantastic. It's, uh, you know, to be completely transparent and honest, you know, not everything is great, and you know, we were a little bit behind today. I had to wait for my mom, my babysitter. Uh, there's traffic, but she's here now, and we are good to go. So. I really appreciate you being here. It's it's a pleasure, and I'm excited to talk to you about Common Core curriculum and handwriting. Before we do that, though, we're going to dive into your article. We're going to do a really deep dive into it. But before we do that, I'd love for you to share a little bit about yourself as an occupational therapist. Maybe uh, just where you are physically located and what you've been up to.
0: Okay, um, so I am a faculty member at Russell Sage College. Uh, I I'm the program director of the master's um, and newly accredited occupational therapy doctorate programs at Russell Sage College. I taught in pediatrics for several years, and now I teach in research as well. So I uh, have a couple of articles out there, and I'm working on lots of other things. I was a school-based practitioner, though, for 18 years while I came into academia. I earned my doctorate in 2011 at Rocky Mountain University, had my bachelor's from Utica College in uh, Utica, New York, and so here I am.
1: Awesome. Awesome. And so, so did you say that you earned your doctorate at the school that you're currently working at, or were they two separate schools?
0: No. So uh, Rocky Mountain University, I earned my doctorate at, and I um, I teach at Russell Sage College in Troy. Okay.
1: So, there we different. go. Gotcha. Thank you. And you mentioned you have several years in school-based practice. What was that like? How do you enjoy that experience? And yeah, just tell us a little bit about that experience. Uh,
0: so I, I was not interested in working with children when I first got into OT. Uh, I worked in rehab in New Hampshire for a short period of time and ended up moving back to New York and found a school-based practice job near my home and loved it. Fell in love immediately. Um, I really enjoyed working with children, teachers, administrators, families uh, within the school-based setting. I, I really wanted children to have success and I think that I helped many, many of them get there um, to feel that little bit of success that they were struggling with outside of their struggles in school. So that was my motivation for staying. Um, And then I met a a couple of wonderful women from Russell Sage College and taking fieldwork students Mm -hmm. at that school. And through both of them, I kind of ended up getting my doctorate and coming into academia.
1: Wow. Wow. It's it's always amazing how we uh, end up where we are today. And so that sounds like a wonderful journey. Yeah. You mentioned that you're kind of in charge of some research now and you have a few different things in the works. Uh, would you mind sharing with us other than just the article that we're talking about today? What other things are you interested in research wise and what's going on?
0: Sure. So response to intervention is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, and it's it's one of the future directions I would like to go. I think that it is implemented so differently in one, local schools, but two, across the nation. Um, I think there are some people who do it very, very well, and we could all use some advice from them. And I just think that from a New York State perspective, I would like to head toward like State Board or, or our NYSOTA uh, organization and really work to get RTI a little bit more consistent across occupational therapy and school-based practice.
1: I love that. I I don't know if you've listened to one or a hundred episodes of the podcast, but I am a big uh, believer in RTI. You know, I've been using the I don't know. It's not an acronym. But it's a little metaphor, I guess. You know, going upstream, and I I call going upstream using RTI to prevent those downstream evaluations, or um, even the students that just. know we can support them earlier, uh, sooner than later, and going upstream to support them may help them down the road. And so uh, you're preaching to the choir. I think most people that listen to the podcast love when we're able to talk about RTI, and they they are really interested in starting up OT within their school's RTI program as well. So uh, who knows? Maybe we'll have to have another (laughs) another uh, discussion with you later down the road on RTI, especially if you have more research coming out about that. That would be fantastic.
0: Sounds good. I don't have research in the in the works now. It's it's uh, on my next of things to do list.
1: All right, we'll give you we'll give you three years. Sounds good. <laughs> I know that's not very long when it comes to academic research time, but <laughs> right.
0: Right. <laughs> we'll and right now, we're really um, looking at. I do have a study out right now looking at um, the effects of child development from COVID um, oh, wow. and how, how children are managing school now. Preliminary results state that you know it's it, children are struggling. They had a mm-hmm. year of. Doing different things than what they were doing in school, so we're continuing that. Um, and I also do some fieldwork, uh, educator research. So,
1: wow. Okay. Awesome. That's great. Well, let's go ahead and and dive into this article a little bit. Uh, the The title of the article is "It's from 2017: Handwriting and Common Core State Standards, Teacher, Occupational Therapist, and Administrator Perceptions from New York State Public Schools." And this was published in the AJOT and I guess, you know, obviously you have a background in school based OT, but what drove you to specifically look into Common Core and handwriting?
0: So, Common Core came out in 2010, was implemented in 11 or 12. I'm forgetting the actual academic years that it was implemented in, but it just seemed like while their guidelines and they were very well intentioned, I think that it added a lot of stress to teachers based on the the guidelines, the very strict things that that the Common Core standards were asking for. We teach a lot to standardized tests, um, high stakes tests for schools. Um, It's aid driven. Um, And I think the Common Core standards really stressed a lot of people out in schools, Um, added a lot of components, but didn't remove any components. Um, so as an occupational therapist, looking at the increase in referrals during that time, um, it's also the time I was earning my doctorate. so I was really paying attention to what was happening. We seemed to get an influx of referrals for handwriting. And I really felt it was because teachers were now not teaching handwriting as much in the classroom.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: response to intervention, I think that we I ended up supporting a lot of teachers in the classroom with classroom based instruction. Uh, using several different programs and modified programs, but it just made me think that I wanted to look a little deeper into what really is happening.
1: Gotcha. Absolutely. And, you know, before we get too far into this, I I don't think I have this in the the notes, so I apologize if this is a, a difficult question, but I know that there are some states that have kind of, they switched to Common Core and they've decided to go against it, I know here in California, we do use Common Core. It sounds like in New York, you use Common Core as well. But I know that there have been some states that have almost pushed against it a little bit. And I'm just wondering if you have read up at all in understanding why that is the case, or maybe what some of their reactions are.
0: I don't actually know the states that don't. It was one of my future directions, actually, in this article to really look at the states that are not using Common Core. Um, And I never did circle back to it. But I think Common Core is a, a great concept. It's a great thing to have guidelines for schools to go by, you know, when we have some schools that are very highly driven academically and have high academic standards, and some schools that are maybe a little bit Basically, I think it's appropriate to have specific standards across the nation. I don't know the difference, though, between the the states that are rolling it out versus the states Mm -hmm. that have. New York State specifically revised, uh, I think Common Core in general was revised in 2017, right when this article was coming out. But there's not a ton of difference in what that is. There's a couple more developmental perspectives added to mm-hmm. it, thankfully. But other than that, I haven't seen a ton, but I also haven't looked deeply into it.
1: Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And then kind of a following up with that, you know, I came into the school-based OT world around 2012. And you said the shift for Common Core was when again? It was
0: developed in 2010, Well, I, well I think it was really rolled out in 2010 states were really starting to roll it out into their schools in 2011
2: 2012
0: Mm -hmm. and you know speaking with some people in education leadership their perspective is that it's the um, implementation of it that was the challenge it was rolled out it wasn't really widely educated uh teachers were not necessarily educated in how to best Mm this. Um, and so therefore, it was left to a lot of interpretation of states and then local districts to roll it out the way they saw fit. And it was just confusing. I think there was a lot of push to meet higher standards without a lot of guidance as to what to be let go of then.
1: Yeah. And I know that is that still struggle today. I think my, my wife's an assistant principal, and she goes to PLCs with all of her different grade levels and and trying to get them to teach the to the standards is still a struggle even today. Where I was going with that was that I was coming into the world in 2012, which sounds like it's right as Common Core was just kicking off. I think I probably started hearing that word Common Core probably closer to 2014, 2015 is when I really started to understand what it was. For those of us who have not been a school-based OT for more than a decade, 10 years or so, what was in place before Common Core?
0: So looking at curriculum prior to Common Core, I think I didn't, I wasn't taught about instruction in school. uh, Yeah, neither was I. In school. Um, So I had to learn. I had to go and speak with the teachers about what is it that they're teaching. So I would go to the kindergarten, first grade, second grade teachers, ask them what their curriculum was, um, figured out what levels of reading, writing, math, production, participation they were at. They followed standards. This was back when state testing came out and they were teaching to high stakes testing. So I worked closely with teachers to find out what they were working on. I can't say it's a hundred percent different than Common Core. Common Core though, I think standardized curriculum across the country so that it was what was happening in New York was similar to what was happening in Florida, California, Texas, Minnesota, you know, so things were kind of consolidated and more consistent.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and again, we kind of alluded to it earlier. I know some states are going, like, kind of going back against Common Core, and I don't fully understand the reasoning about it. Um, I'm sure that there, I'm just going to say it out loud that I know right now there has been a lot of political debate over what is taught and not taught in schools. I don't know if that has anything to do with it or if it's something else, but either way, you know, it. I, I like the idea of having it kind of a universal. Standards. You know, if you're in Arizona, if you're in California, if you're in Washington, New York, whatever, the kids are being taught the same thing. And I think part of that was that you had kids moving and something might have been a standard in the third grade for one state that might be a standard in second grade at another state. And so if they transferred after their second grade year, then maybe they didn't get whatever it was that was supposed to be taught in third grade. I don't know. But yeah. Yeah. So.
0: I actually had an example of that. One of my mentors for um, when I first became an occupational therapist working with children in school settings, she was uh, taught, I think in her original school, she was supposed to learn cursive in second grade. She moved in between, I think I'm saying Mm -hmm. it back, but she moved in between and she missed cursive teaching. So she learned how to write cursive. So when she was working with children in school-based practice, she had to teach herself how to write in cursive so she could teach cursive. You know, so yeah. it is true. Different different grade levels and different schools and different states teach different things. As all of the concepts for, you know, character building and social skills, social emotional learning, all of those things came in, we get this build up of all of these things that we have to teach in schools. So we have to teach more and more and more consistently. Um, and I think the Common Core really gives us that guidance as to what are those basic skills, but they're missing that single component of handwriting.
1: Gotcha. And you know what? That's what we're going to dive into. So, you know, every good research article that comes out or any research article that comes out, good or bad, typically has a literature review. And I know we've already dove in or we've. Divin, am I Dove? I don't know. The we've already looked at the Common Core. We've talked about that a little bit. But when you were doing and the team was doing the the literature review for all this, was there anything that you found that you didn't know before that comes to your mind, or was there maybe something that you were looking for that you couldn't find? Does that make sense? What 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 did you find out during that literature review?
0: It does. Um, through my experience and my observations of children and and teachers, I really wasn't surprised by any of the information out there. I think the research articles supported what my assumptions already were, you know, in working with children, I saw the children who struggled with handwriting. Um, I saw the teachers who did fabulous jobs with teaching handwriting and wanted OT as a support to just follow up with the the little things. I saw that in the research. Um, I saw the curriculum, the handwriting curriculum, that were out there and that teachers were using, I saw it be successful. I also saw, again, teachers struggle with it when all of these other curriculum requirements were being added. Uh, so when I looked at educational articles on handwriting, I saw those struggles. Um, I, Donica wrote an article, uh, I believe it was Donica who had um, information in there about teachers don't get handwriting instruction in their college Yep, their academic programs, yep. you know, so I don't think anything surprised me, but I wanted to add to that too. So I, I hope this article is helping at least some people understand <laughs> a little more.
1: <laughs> yeah. That, that Donica article is one that I reference to uh, occasionally as well for that same reason. Uh, so thank you. And then on the flip side of that, you know, you, things made sense for what you saw, but was there anything that you were expecting to find maybe from research? Obviously every time you you dive into research world, you're, you're answering a question. Um, your question was handwriting in common core. Was what, what was the mesh or the disconnect? Was there anything that you were hoping to find that you couldn't find during your literature review?
0: I was really hoping to find something out there developmentally that told me how much I needed to be teaching handwriting. And how do I support handwriting instruction in schools? Uh, I had a conversation at one point with an instructional technology director Who said they're not even teaching typing anymore because kids are learning a keyboard through texting and through gaming
1: that's Uh, very different
0: correct (laughs) very very different um and i was like you can't take this stuff out of instruction we still have to learn it as a developmental skill and if you just put it in there at the beginning and then practice it you know a little bit each day until you get good at it then we all have that basic skill so i was hoping for that. Um, Common Core doesn't didn't give it back in 2010 and it still doesn't in 2017.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. So then Common Core, it sounds like it lost its place or handwriting lost its place within Common Core. You know, I remember learning to handwrite back in elementary school, and I think many of us do, but why do you feel that you mentioned, you know, texting and whatnot? Why do you feel that handwriting has lost its place within Common Core? Why do you think maybe those who developed Common Core didn't focus on handwriting. And this may be a research-backed question that I'm asking you, or it may just be, a, be an opinion.
0: It's anecdotally, I think that it has, that skill has just gone by the wayside. And it's while some people still believe in it and teach it, they do it because they know it's important.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: other, it's not a, a maybe a forethought to education. You know, when I look at the standards of even in pre-kindergarten, that students have to use a combination of drawing, dictating, oral expression, and emergent writing to talk about familiar topics, that's a lot for pre-kindergarten. And there's writing in there, but there's not that development of how do you write? Yeah. Talk about math and numbers. There's all sorts of counting things. There's all sorts of use of the hands to count. And what does a, a number mean? And what does it represent? And then how do you use it? We've forgotten that with letters, Mm-hmm. I, I think it just needs to be put back in a, in a basic level of education.
1: Yeah. And I, I think too, my opinion on this is that when I look at the common core standards, you see that word, "write." You see that word, "write." They will write, they will write, they will draw, but there's nothing to kind of show what writing means because there are so many factors that go into writing a kid, a preschooler, a kindergartner will write. Well, like, okay, are they going to write a sentence? Are they going to write a word? Are they going to, like, what are we really expecting them? Are we expecting them to copy a sentence or to write from their own head a sentence? I mean, those are very different concepts. And we understand that as occupational therapists. And I think that teachers would appreciate that more specificity, I guess, you know, and understand, like, okay, when the Common Core kindergarten standard says, write, what they're really talking about is copying, um, near point copy, copying from the board or whatever. So yeah, I, I think that's a difficult area with Common Core.
0: Right, right. And that structure of writing, that that motor skill um, with the cognitive component of what I put on paper, what I draw on paper, it, the more I practice that motor plan, the easier it's going to be for me to be able to express my actual cognitive thoughts. And then I can function in school, I can participate in, in activities and be good at it and feel successful at it.
1: Yeah. Good thing schools have occupational therapists. We can, we can help them out with these things.
0: <laughs> Hopefully we continue to do that.
1: Yep, yep. All right. So obviously we're talking about the article. We're talking about handwriting, Common Core, the connections, the disconnect. But what were some of those key questions you wanted to answer with this study?
0: So I wanted to look at the present instructional strategies that teachers were using for handwriting um, under the background of Common Core um, I wanted to look at what supports were offered for handwriting in schools, uh, and then I wanted to look at the impact Common Core made on children's written expression overall.
1: Awesome. And so, what was what was the methodology? How are we gonna how are we gonna do this?
0: Yeah. So uh, we did a survey and interviews. So we set up a survey. Um, the survey had I don't know a lot of questions overall. I think it was over a hundred questions total. Yeah.
1: I was Which, surprised by that. I think it was like 121 or something like that. It was a lot of questions.
0: Something like that. But when you look at the survey, the survey, not one person answered 121 questions. So every person answered demographic information to figure uh-huh. out who's answering what. And then there were about 10 to 15 questions, depending on the title of the participant, as to what number of questions they were answering. So principals answered about 10 questions. Teachers and occupational therapists answered about 14 or 15 questions.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So it was kind of broken down into what your role was. And that makes sense. You're not going to ask administrators what they're doing in the classroom for handwriting because they're not doing anything in the classroom for handwriting. Got it. <laughs> gotcha. All right. And so uh, you had this survey. Was it a Was it developed by the team, I'm assuming, the survey?
0: So the survey came about because I read an article in 2006 that Asha Asher had written. Um, and she had done a survey regarding handwriting. And I loved the article and contacted Asha, um, as I think all authors would love to be contacted about the research. Um, and we revised the the survey. So she had a team of researcher students at Xavier University, and I had mine here at Russell Sage college. And we revised the survey to be more um, directed towards common core questions and handwriting instruction. Once we were done with that, she was in she was heading on to the next her next uh, direction in life. And I took the survey and ran with it here, and put it out to New York State educators, principals, occupational therapists and curriculum instructors or directors um,
1: in New York state. Awesome. Great. And so uh, you sent this out to, it was within New York, New York state, all of New York state, right? It was. Yes. Okay. Awesome. And so how did you get this out to everyone?
0: So our survey was done on SurveyMonkey and we looked at the New York state education website. We pulled, it was over 600 schools that we pulled all of the contact information from. So we developed a master list which of course changes every year as teachers and principals move from place to place. So it's never consistent.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So we use that uh, website to send out over 600 surveys, um, survey requests yeah. uh, to specifically those people in New York state. So we knew that it was only going to people within New York state. And then from that, we got a hundred, we received 131
1: responses. That's not a bad response rate. One That's in six. Or, no, yeah. not bad at all. Yeah. <laughs> was there, was there any incentive? <laughs>
0: Uh, there was not incentive. Nope.
1: Wow. Even nope. better.
0: Yeah. Yep. Just uh, please answer our questions. Cause we're interested.
1: <laughs> awesome. And so you had about 120, 121, I think it was 31,
0: 131.
1: 131. 131. Yep. Do you kind of just have a rough breakdown? Was it, uh, I, I could see occupational therapists being really eager and maybe administrators a little less eager to, to respond. What did that look yeah. like?
0: So we actually had 33 principals, 24 occupational therapists, 62 teachers two directors of curriculum and eight special educators so yeah one of our higher numbers was actually principals which is impressive
1: yeah and when when i hear you talk about when you say those numbers In my head, that kind of makes sense, given the amount of OTs that are within a state versus the amount of teachers that are within a state. Like, you're going to have more teachers because there are more teachers. You're going to have a little less administrators because there are less. And then same thing with uh, directors or coordinators. Of course, you're going to have less of those because there's only one director per district, potentially, or something like that. So that makes sense. All right. Cool. Great. Well, thank you for that. I guess the next step is to really start diving into some of the results and the data. And so I don't know where you want to start with this. What, what were some things that that came back?
0: Well, uh, what came back is that there is not a consistently used handwriting curriculum. And I think, well, there doesn't necessarily have to be using one to begin with is important. You know, so we have this set of common core standards that tells us what we should be doing in education but because there is nothing specific to handwriting, it's easy to set it aside and not think about it again. So if you have that curriculum in front of you, you have that workbook, even though, you know, I'm not a huge proponent necessarily of worksheet, 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 mm-hmm. but if you have that curriculum, you can at least embed it into everything else that you're doing, you know, on a consistent basis during a week.
1: Yeah. And I'm looking at the, the table that you have here and just for those who are listening, we've got I think twenty percent responded that they used handwriting without tears, sixteen point seven use foundations, thirteen percent Zena Blosser, six point seven percent other, and then forty three percent none. Correct. That's telling.
0: It is very telling. Keep in mind though with those results, some of those teachers, well, they were K through two teachers at that point. Um, and there were 30 of them who responded. So that's you know maybe they were second grade teachers that didn't weren't necessarily working looking at that Mm -hmm. anymore and weren't teaching cursive. So there could be a reason that they weren't using a material or a curriculum per se. But it is still it's challenging to know that there were teachers without Mm -hmm. uh, not a background a curriculum to support
1: them for handwriting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the other thing, I mean, I know from my own you know reading of articles that. When it comes down to it, it's not necessarily that one program is better than another. It's just that you need to have a program. Um, And even if it's your own curriculum for handwriting, that is probably okay. But you need to have structure. And uh, going back to kind of our conversation about Common Core, right? Common Core was supposed to make everything standardized from California to New York. I also think it could be tricky if, you know, your kindergarten teachers using handwriting without tears. And then your first grade teachers using foundations, and then your third grade teachers using the size matters program, that could be very confusing for for kids. <laughs> so language
0: even of you know top to bottom, left to right, the you know the language of, of the directions of forming letters.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: where do your letters sit? what What do you call those lines? you know, what do you call the dipper letters? That language, if you don't have a consistent language across a school, um, and again, you talked about children moving from school to school too, Mm -hmm. there's a a lack of consistency within the language of of how letters are even formed.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that's the the difference between potentially handwriting curriculum. Uh, You also had in here different time spent per week about, uh, I'm assuming that information mostly came from teachers, the amount of time that they're spending per week on handwriting. What did you resolve from from that?
0: So most people were teaching a, a very small amount of time, 30, um, so less than 40 minutes per week was one response. Um, about 10 minutes per week was another response. Um, a curriculum director stated that it should be taught 30 minutes times two sessions per week. Uh, when it's instructed. So, as you're learning those instructional components, but then for the practice sessions, it could be, you know, 15 minutes three times a week, which still is not very much as children are learning the skills. So, I'm thinking, you know, K1, two, and children are really looking at learning the development of writing and becoming more proficient at it. And then as they progress through first and second grade, getting smaller handwriting, quicker handwriting, more words on a page and paragraph, organizing. You know, all of those instructional pieces should be a little bit more than that. And 40 minutes in a week is really not enough. When we think about that, if we practice for musical instruments or we practice for a, a sport, we have to put a lot more time in than just 40 minutes a week. So that foundational component of handwriting would be much more beneficial if it was a greater number of minutes per week.
1: Mm -hmm. And by chance, did you guys talk at all or did you have research from before that talked about kind of what is that recommended amount? I don't know what like, I don't know what some of the programs recommend. Um, Do they recommend, you know, that daily 15 minutes or what have you seen? Yeah,
0: 15 to 20 minutes. I think he had running without tears is 20 minutes per day. So I I know size matters is out there and I was listening to the podcast that Mosquits had done with you recently. Um, and I, I don't necessarily know those components, but I know when I was in school working with kindergarten, first grade, second grade, I would try to get in there at least 20 minutes a couple times a week to to assist. And you know, many teachers were very welcoming. Other teachers were like, "I got this, I can do this," um, and other teachers sometimes pass it.
1: So. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's how it is. That's definitely how it is. Okay, so we've got different handwriting curriculums. We've got different amount of time spent. I'm assuming that a lot of that information came from teachers. Uh, what did we learn from maybe some of the other people involved in the survey? You had te- or you had administrators, you had OTs. What were some of the information you got there?
0: So um principals didn't realize that handwriting was was necessarily a problem. They didn't realize that that teachers weren't teaching handwriting. So that was definitely one of those surprising factors. Uh, They knew that it was in the curriculum. They didn't realize the disconnect necessarily between common core and the decreased instruction of handwriting as that was being rolled out. Okay. Handwriting was still, still occurring.
1: So they, they just figured, you know, there's no, there's no common core. We um, aspect to handwriting. There's nothing that says teachers have to teach common or handwriting within common core. We are telling them to follow the standards But at the same time, they should also be teaching handwriting. (laughs) I I just think that's a little comical.
0: It it is. And without that explicit statement of, well, keep teaching handwriting, it can certainly go by the wayside. And with everything that teachers have to teach, I also understand there's a
1: lot. Absolutely. And, And that's what exactly Common Core is telling you to teach this and this and this and this. Right. And if you're constantly being told to teach this, then you're going to stop teaching other things that you might have usually taught in the first month of of the school year. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. All right. And so that's what kind of some of the administrators. Did you find anything surprising or shocking or relevant from the occupational therapy providers?
0: Uh, No, just that they would typically, um, I think most tried to use response intervention kind of components to go in and support from a classroom perspective first, and then pull children, uh, either work with them on the side of a classroom or or pull them out of the classroom to work with them on handwriting. Um, Referrals did seem to be increasing, but I I think in general, the OTs certainly supported what was seen with the decrease in instruction through teachers. So I think Very familiar with handwriting curriculum. I think OTs were, and I don't think I have this in the article, but I think OTs in general tend to be those people who go in and make all those modifications for paper, for you know, providing strategies, giving out those pencil grips, you know, supporting supporting the teacher but also the student for that success.
1: Mm -hmm. So, and and what you just kind of alluded to is what an OT might do to to support. Uh, Did you have some questions embedded in there, like what a teacher might do? if a child was struggling and maybe what some of their answers were did they talk about reaching out to an ot or did they have some general strategies that they they would use by chance
0: so one of the one of the flaws of our our study was the fact that we asked about handwriting instruction and not specific instructional perspectives um so we didn't add ask specifically about what handwriting instruction do you do what supports do you give i think that. But the teachers did say that they would, you know, they would modify timing, they would modify the lined paper, um, they would give a, a pencil grip or a different type of pencil if they had one. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the OTs also gave all of those supports when the teacher was was at that loss.
1: Awesome, great. All right, you, we talked about the majority of the participants, and I don't know that there's an answer to this, but you talked about having one to two coordinators directors. Did you guys gather any data from that or was it worth looking at or, or what?
0: From the instructional, the curriculum uh, directors? I think so.
1: so, yeah. You talked about some sort of directors. I don't know what position they might've been in, but yeah.
0: So we call it director of curriculum in this study. They're, so I think typically the director of curriculum, they are interested in how do we make education better for children? I think that's just their nature. Mm-hmm. So the, the one response that I put in the article was, the fact that they believed there should be a specific amount of time per week that is dedicated to handwriting instruction. But that position is few and far between. There's usually one or two per school, if that. So I think that that person, while they're supporting the handwriting instruction, also has to support the remainder of curriculum in general. But the the two that we had um, as part of our study were absolutely in support of keeping handwriting instruction as a practice time.
1: Well, that's good to hear. You know, it's it's not just us as the OTs that are kind of banging our banging our fists on the table saying we need to have it there. It's it's other people within education that are saying it as well. Correct. Awesome. Okay. All right. Uh, you do have a, a topic within the article called the impact of Common Core on children's written expression, and I think as OTs, this is one of those things that we know. And it sounds like maybe it's something that your other other educators also know. But what are some of those downstream impacts of writing that not teaching handwriting at the get-go can impact?
0: So I think if we don't teach the handwriting skill, the motor components of writing don't get embedded in that motor plan for a child. They end up drawing the letters instead of truly writing the letters. They're not as fluent in their writing So that makes them a little slower. It makes their thought process a little more challenging. So when they have to add that cognitive component of the writing, what they wanna say to that motor act of writing, that combination ends up being a lot harder. Um, Graham was one of the authors who, I have quite a few articles in my uh, literature review portion from Graham and, and his colleagues. And they really talk about that fluency, the timing, speed of writing and how that affects uh, the child's performance. Mm-hmm. If you have two samples of handwriting, and you have, you know, th- they could be exactly the same content. You have a messy sample, and you have a very neat sample. The neat sample is going to get graded higher by that by the teacher than the messy sample because it's just easier to read. And yet, the the feeling of those students as they're writing those samples is probably the student who's writing messy is probably much more stressed. So there's that, you know, that child understanding and lack of feeling successful when they're practicing those writing skills too
1: yeah yeah and and like you said you know kids get graded per se on their legibility and that could impact their overall grade on assignment even if the knowledge has been learned and expressed the legibility could bring down the grade for me i know i to this day I still have terrible handwriting um unless I really put effort into it I can write nice but for me I just want to get things out as quick as possible I'm someone who is very uh, very time I always like to save time um you know it's like do you do I turn right at this light or the next light which which light's going to save me that, that 30 seconds and that's how it is for me with writing too and it always has been and my writing has always been messy and I I think that there's so many various factors that go into handwriting, but at the same time, we are very much judged by our handwriting, whether it's nice or not. Um, And that uh, fair or unfair, you know, it is what it is. And uh, I think as all of us, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, I don't want to call it talk, but there's a lot of just understanding. You know, we have to start to understand ourselves, our own biases, our own, what we, What we do, what we don't do, and why we make those decisions. And as teachers and OTs and educators as a whole, we have to understand that as well. And we have to know that, you know, just because a student's giving us handwriting that's not the neatest doesn't mean that they're not smart or, you know, those don't connect. And I really liked what you said. That student that does have the messy writing, it could mean that they're stressed. It could mean that they're rushing. It could mean that. They're focusing on the content over what my handwriting looks like because they're afraid that they're going to run out of time. So there's so many different things that that could mean,
0: right? And with high stakes testing too, the teacher who teaches the child all year long is not necessarily a person who is grading that child's writing sample. You know, so someone who's not familiar with that student does not understand what that child's trying to say because their handwriting is messy. Is also on a on a one to four rubric or zero to four rubric is going to score a lower score based on the messiness of that handwriting. And it does not mean that that child is not intelligent. It doesn't mean that that child doesn't have a lot to say and that Mm -hmm. it's appropriate what that child's saying. It just means it's messier and was graded differently. So that is a challenge too, of of supporting all of our students regardless of what that handwriting looks like. Typing definitely comes into play with that. I think that as we type more and more and as high stakes testing is turning towards a typed response versus a written response, that may help, but there's also research out there to support the fact that that motor skill of learning handwriting supports that overall typed response, too. If you know it in, in handwriting, you're going to be quicker at it with the typed response.
1: Interesting. That's, huh. I, I know that there's research about, you know, the remembering factors when you write them versus typing. I know often there is that motor memory or whatever it is, the motor aspect to writing can help you potentially retain more information when you write it down, as opposed to typing something out. Um, I don't know if there's newer research on that. That was a while ago. But that's interesting to see that if you can write out things, then you're likely going to be able to type out things as well. Is that kind of what you said?
0: It is. And I don't necessarily have evidence to support that, but I know in my experiences of working with, with children who needed to use a type, uh, needed to type rather than write because their writing was just that challenging. Um, they were not necessarily better typers. Um, their responses were not necessarily longer. So that would be a co- really cool study to look at in the future, yeah. you know, to see if if that was the case, but. I know we're all faster with typing than we are with writing at this point because we've practiced it for so much, for so much time. But I think kids (laughs) were learning to write is tougher.
1: Sorry, I'm laughing over here because I I always say that there's a reason I have a podcast and not a very active blog. I am terrible. My writing is not neat. I probably type at about 25 words per minute, which for many of you, I know that is like terribly slow. Um, And I know for some people that's fairly fast, but for a lot of people, I I envy the people that can like type 100 words per minute and have a conversation with me at the same time. I'm like, how are you doing that? But those are also the people that have the nice writing like my wife does. Uh, So there we go. All right. I, I do want to talk a little bit about how... This research can impact occupational therapy providers. But before I dive into that, I want to give you one last opportunity. Was there was there anything that we missed that we didn't talk about today about the research? Anything that shocked you? Anything that just came to light, or anything that we just missed?
0: I just i I want to just make sure that I convey the fact that OTs are there to support teachers in, in school. You know, we are very collaborative. We can provide a lot of solutions. It's important for us to check in with teachers to make sure whatever strategies we're providing is something that that teacher can actually follow through with in support. Um, my favorite thing to do is to go in and teach with the teacher in those activities, the handwriting activities, whether it's, you know, practicing cutting skills, if they have a class that's challenged or whatever, to be a, a direct support to that teacher and um, and and be there with them rather than hand them some things and have them follow through because teachers just cannot do one more thing. So um mm-hmm right? I, I love that ability to do that. And I feel like the teachers who took this particular survey felt that the OTs who were coming in and assisting them were doing that.
1: That's great. Actually, I I, I am a big uh, proponent for getting outside of the OT literature, as you did for this instruct for this research too. You had to go into the education world and do research. And I did that as well for a recent presentation I gave. And I found articles from teachers that were talking about working with OTs. And, you know, like 65% wanted more time with their OTs to learn more. And one thing that really stood out to me was that what they felt was a facilitator was when the OTs came into the class and showed them how to do something, modeled it for them and their aides. And they, it was a quote unquote, you know, turn off or lack of a better word if they didn't do that. if an OT was just telling a teacher something to do, uh, then it it wasn't something that they wanted to hear. They really wanted to see the OT in their room working on that skill with the student so that they could observe it, see how to do it and then carry it over the next day, the following day, the next week. And so yeah, we definitely need to get into the classrooms. I, I think it's okay to do something with a student outside of a classroom, you know, pull them out and work on something. But then once you have that skill down, once the kid has that skill down, then transition into the classroom, you know? And, you know, you taught Billy how to write a few letters outside the classroom. Now let's go into the classroom. Let's do it in the classroom where the teacher can see exactly what verbal cues work, what prompts work, what whether it's behavioral or sensory strategies, what works for that student in the classroom.
0: I 100% agree with that. I think the teacher's benefits from seeing it. The child benefits from being able to be successful in that classroom in front of the teacher. You know, so I, I think oh, it's yeah. a, you do that.
1: Absolutely, That's big. I like that. I like that. Right. The, the, the student benefits. Sorry, I want to make sure everyone heard that. The student benefits from the teacher seeing that student being successful in the classroom
0: absolutely. You know, some of the kids that we see in OT haven't felt a whole lot of success. So when we teach them to do something successfully, we bring them into the classroom and we set up those opportunities for success. The teacher sees it, the peers see it, you know, and then the child feels that level of success. And, and, you know, that makes them motivated to continue uh, working towards more success.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I keep saying we're going to jump into the next part. But occupational therapy providers you surveyed them was there any questions related to like do you have a role in handwriting curriculum in the in the school or anything like that or was it more just how do you support the teachers
0: I think it was more how do you how do you support well how do you support handwriting in general let me just take a quick peek at the at the questions for OTs how does your role as an occupational therapist support handwriting instruction in the classroom what is your philosophy on handwriting instruction, common interventions that you use? So that was in the article. So the uh, adapted paper, utensils, et cetera, uh-huh. the handwriting. programs. Yeah. So I think I'm not answering your question, but no, I have support the how to support teachers.
1: OK, yeah. And I think the only other thing that I might like to see, again, for anyone looking to do their OTD or their Ph.D. is how are OTs even going beyond supporting teachers? But are OTs going above that step to the next level? Are they potentially working with that curriculum director to potentially do something? Because I think OTs, uh, we kind of, we work side-by-side teachers. And I think in a way, it's great, obviously, but it also limits us if we're not able to get to the next level and have those conversations with the directors on the importance of of handwriting on the importance of sensory just related to the classroom and other areas that we have knowledge about that could help all students, not just the students that are struggling and we're getting called in to ask for. And so I would love to see, again, for anyone out there looking for a project, uh, how are OTs working with the next level up, the next administration, basically? How are they working with administrators or are they? I think that'd be great to see.
0: Yeah, I agree, I agree with that. I think T, uh, OTs need to embed themselves in the school culture overall, not just with children and teachers, but with administration. Administrations should know who you are. You should be able to advocate for budgeting items, to be able to support children in classrooms, after school programs. You know, I, I think to be known by all of the people who work in a school, faculty and staff and administration, our cafeteria workers knew us because we would go in and we would see children in and around their, their mealtimes to make things either more fun or to support with a snack. All of the faculty and staff knew us because we were in multiple classrooms. Our administration knew us because we attended meetings. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to, as an OT, to embed yourselves in, in every part of the school culture that you can.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So going in, and we'll wrap this up with a little conversation about how OTs can take the knowledge from what we talked about today and and move forward with it. And we've already done that a little bit, but I like to break up the process of occupational therapy within education um, into three kind of main categories. I know there's larger, there's more to it, but pre-evaluation, which can kind of be like systems levels, RTI type of stuff. The evaluation process. And then even interventions itself, um, you know, after the evaluation, working with students directly. And so if we look at those three areas, let's start with that pre-evaluation, the systems level. What would you like to see a takeaway for occupational therapists? What can they do to embed this, the knowledge that they have now about curriculum and handwriting? What can they do at a systems level?
0: One, know what the curriculum is, to have conversation at grade level meetings of what is the curriculum that you're supporting? Uh, what is it that the children are struggling with within that curriculum? Get some support from administration to be able to do some sort of response to intervention where you're working with either a grade level or classrooms. So again, as you had said, working with all children. We benefit yeah. every child. Um, and then identifying those kids who need a little bit more help from there. So that's what I would say from the systems level.
1: That's great. And before we move on, I don't know how familiar familiar you are with the Every Student Succeeds Act. I know it just came out in 2015, right around the time you're putting all this together. And we talked about the rollout of of Common Core maybe not being the best. And now we're seeing that again, I think, with ESSA. And, you know, within ESSA, we are identified as Specialized Individual Support Personnel, SISP. But that's supposed to support all educators or all of education, not just um special education, which is kind of where our role has been for the past 30, 40 years. But again, we're just seeing that that poor rollout from administration and how we can support all students. And I think that that RTI, that MTSS uh, rollout is something that we need to be a part of. So thank you. Absolutely. And now so that was the the pre evaluation. Let's talk about evaluation and maybe even the IEP, you know, goals, services, putting services together what do you think we should take away from this article that can help us with both the evaluation process and maybe the the IEP the planning of services process
0: as far as evaluation i think that evaluations can take a really long time if we allow them to i think that we need to streamline you know those those key assessments that we know are going to identify what we believe the problem is become proficient at those so that we're rolling them out very quickly and um, writing them up effectively, really looking at what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses or the challenges of the child, and then how would you, as the OT support them and be very clear and concise in how we put that on paper. Mm -hmm. But also to follow through with that with our services that I think that takes us into the intervention piece too, sorry, of really being direct with the number of not the number of children, the types of, of issues children are, are showing, you know, it's obviously you've mentioned sensory, we've mentioned handwriting, you know, what are the types of things that we can work on? How can we support from a systems perspective? If there are several kids, maybe in a classroom or a grade level, how do you get the most bang for your buck as an OT
2: mm-hmm. and then
0: advocate from, you know, a perspective of how do we support the, the children who have those major, the bulks of the problem? Yeah. But I can I ask you a question about,
1: that? sorry, sorry, say that last part again.
0: Just streamlining uh, evaluation, getting really good at it.
1: Mm-hmm. And I know you're not currently practicing, but you were a school-based OT for a long time. Uh, can I ask you maybe what some of your common go-to assessments were, whether related to handwriting or or otherwise?
0: Sure. I appreciated the evaluation tool of children's handwriting, um, handwriting um, Oh my goodness, the THS, the TESSA handwriting skills.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the Minnesota is a very quick one. I think for me, it depended on how much time I had in the grade level of the child as yeah. to which one I was going to choose. Um, I think I tended to use the THS more, the t- TESSA handwriting skills more with the kindergartners, um, and then the ACH evaluation tool of children's handwriting with first and second graders typically. I appreciated the Peabody developmental motor skills for a younger population, but because yeah. it ate out quickly, the bot—I'm not going to pronounce that on here.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Neither do I.
0: Brendan Kozlowski tested motor skills. Wow, um,
2: impressive!
0: So that would be the uh, the one that I would use for motor skills. Higher than that, sensory profile sensory uh, processing measure, you know, I think that there are major evaluations that are out there. I'm probably missing some, and sorry for those authors who who I am missing that I used, but I think to pick a few that you're strong at and that you feel good about representing where a child's strengths and challenges are within, if you don't understand the language behind an assessment, it's not worth giving, you know, so to get really good at what does that mean for the child and how does that relate to their function in the classroom? You know, you can, I can say that their fine water skills are not great, but how does that impact them in a third grade classroom when they can't pick up tools, they can't use them, they can't write proficiently. So I think those are important things to be able to support from that school-based perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, I come from the California side of things. I would love to hear just from like New York. Did you guys have kind of a recommended time that it should take for evaluations when you were in the school? or was I mean you cuz you talked a little bit about time and you're right we need to stream like this we need to we need to have a system in place so that we know what we're doing we don't lose track we stay on target and we get we get it done I, i'll I'll start and i will say i typically say an average evaluation the moment you get the referral to the point that you're done with that that write up for me especially you know before i got really really good at it it could take about 8 hours I think whether I mean obviously not all in one day, not one workday, but over the time, I think it would could could honestly take about eight hours. Um, Do you mind sharing what it would look like potentially for you or someone within your setting?
0: Yeah, if you look from the referral process to the write-up, I would say eight hours is you know certainly is real. Mm -hmm. I think because of the processes that I put in place over the number of years that I was in practice, and I still do assistive tech evaluations, so I still am. A little bit into it awesome. as far as evaluations go. I would say between if it's a, a more straightforward evaluation, two and a half hours to maybe four hours. I think I could get it down into that time frame. And as OTs with full case loads, you know, we're busy people. We have to really figure out how do we streamline those time frames to sit down and write up the evaluation mm-hmm. to you know, before that score the evaluation. So I, th- I think getting good at streamlining using templates. You know, the find and replace names and ages and all of that stuff. So yeah, I would I would say between two and a half hours and four hours once I was really proficient.
1: Gotcha. Great. Thanks for sharing that. All right. We did the evaluation. We took our forward to eight hours, whatever it might be. And now we are planning for that IEP. And I really want to focus in on goals here because um we're talking about common core, we're talking about handwriting. Handwriting we know is probably one of the most common goals that an OT is a part of on an IEP. How can we use common core to mix with our handwriting goals to create good goals? Should we be incorporating common core?
0: I believe yes we should because we are in educational systems to support children in their education. So I think it's it's 100% okay to use a common core goal to support whatever that piece is that we're working on. So uh, since we're on handwriting, I'm going to use the handwriting perspective. So I have pulled up in front of me uh, the fact that the child, and this is a pre-kindergarten goal, um, needs to use a combination of drawing, dictation, oral expression, or emergent writing to state an opinion about a familiar topic in a child-centered, authentic, play-based learning. So, I would pull a piece of that out. So if I knew a child didn't have letters yet, I may say a child will use drawing abilities such as a circ- uh, lines circles, squares, triangles to support a kindergarten based assignment or a pre-kindergarten assignment. Mm-hmm. So I would use something that we work on, that a component of handwriting within that Common Core goal to show that I'm working on what all other people in the school are working on for that particular child, but with mm-hmm. my little spin on it.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's great. Here in California, it's kind of caught on, but not quite completely, is that they really want teachers to actually tag all of their goals with the Common Core state standard that it ties to. And I don't think that that necessarily has to be limited to teachers. I think that as OTs, we should also begin, because again, we're in the educational field, tying it back to a standard. I know that there are some instances where that may not be the right thing to do there aren't a lot of standards that tie back to some of the functional skills that we might work on but when possible especially if we're doing something related to handwriting something that is that is related to the core curriculum we should be tying it back to that to that core curricular core curricular standard i have bookmarked on my chrome google chrome a, a website I don't know if it's California specific, but it has all the state standards. And so it tells me, you know, I can click on kindergarten, I can click on ELA or language, language arts, and I can look at the, the, the different standards and I can say, you know what, I can support this one. This kid's in kindergarten, I can support this kindergarten uh, state standards. So I, I think, yeah, also collaborating with teachers uh, to create goals. I think that's another way to really ensure that you're supporting education is, you know, meeting with a teacher two weeks before the IEP and saying, hey, what are you working on, right? I'm sure you kind of are are an advocate for this. Do you have thoughts?
0: I think constant collaboration with teachers is important. We need to know where the children are in the classroom. We need to know what they are and are not doing. Um, we need to be able to support our goals with functional information and data from the classrooms as to, you know, how are they doing on these things and how often and then move them forward, uh, know where the baseline is and be able to move them forward. So I I do think that it's important for all OTs to know the curriculum. You know, the same thing as if you were in acute care hospital, you'd want to know all the diagnostic criteria and all the rules of the hospital, the billing practices. We have to know all of those same things um, in a different manner in an educational institution.
1: So. Absolutely. Great. I love it. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for joining us today. I think we got through everything that we wanted to talk to, and maybe even a little bit more. But do you have any last words for occupational therapy practitioners that are listening that, uh, you know, they're starting off the school year here? Maybe, I don't know, by the time this comes out, it might be like October, but a a month in or so. uh, Any words of wisdom?
0: Be an advocate for OT, be an advocate for the child, you know, send send wonderful things home, talk to families as much as you can. We don't have ton, tons of time for that. But I think all of those components of being able to support our profession, to advocate for ourselves in all areas of education is really important. Um, I'm always happy to chat about OT advocacy as well. So,
1: I love it. Uh, and one last question before I let you go, Deborah: is there anywhere where people can Is there a place where they can find more about you or follow you or even just find where all your different research articles are at?
0: Um, sure. Uh, my email is, is c-o-l-l-e-d at sage.edu. Um, that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. I am on LinkedIn and unfortunately I'm not a social media follower otherwise. the <laughs> um, so LinkedIn would, would be the extent of it for the moment, but, um, I, I have an article on, um, AJOT, uh, this particular article, and I have another one on OTJR on, uh, a study that I did on proloquo and children with autism yeah, so uh anyone's welcome to contact me if they have questions or uh,
1: all right, I'll be the first one i'm gonna I'm gonna send you another calendar link for uh, scheduling up to talk about proloquo quota go. That is a topic <laughs> a we haven't to <laughs> yeah, because you said you're doing a t technology or a t evaluation oh. still. I know yeah. a lot of people need help with that. So maybe one day that's that'll be our next topic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Deborah, well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate having you. And I'm sure everyone out there listening is uh really appreciative of everything that you shared today. So thank you one last time and I look forward to to keeping in touch. All right. Thanks. You too. All right. Thank you so much, Deborah, for coming on the OT Schoolhouse podcast and sharing so much of that wonderful information. Some of that information, you know, comes directly from the survey and the research that you did. And some of that is just the experience that you have learning as a school-based occupational therapy provider. So thank you so much for that. Some of the things that just stood out to me was that, you know, 40 minutes of handwriting is not enough And even worse than that, 43% of teachers are not even using any sort of curriculum, whether or not it's a, you know, formal program or even just a, you know, curriculum that maybe they developed. It's something that we as school-based OTs can help teachers with so that they can support all of their handwriters, which is everyone, not just the students that quote unquote need OT. So again, thank you so much to Deborah for coming on the OT Schoolhouse podcast. Thank you to you for listening to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. And don't forget to check out all the show notes. We have several links to some of the common handwriting assessments over at OTSchoolhouse.com slash episode 110. I'll see you over there and I'll see you in the next podcast episode. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. For more ways to help you and your students succeed right now, head on over to OTSchoolhouse.com.
1: Until next time, class is dismissed.